That's some of the stuff from the uh, false promise of discipleship stuff we did earlier today, and next to nothing to do with tonight's talk, but you get it for free here. Um, hey, I, I'm aware of what's going on today, just so you know. I get that uh, a lot of you spent a long day out in God's creation, but in the hot sun and sweating and running around, probably more than you're used to, and, and then we just went and had a steak dinner, which was fantastic. But I get that we're tired, and uh, yeah, and I, um, I'm going to try to keep this short, and I'm going to do my best to do so, but I'll tell you this, this is my favorite part of John chapter 1. Like, I love John 1, 1 through 4, Word became flesh and all that kind of stuff. I mean, awesome. I love John 1, 12 through 14, what it says about the incarnation, took on flesh, tabernacled among us, all that. I love... Jesus turning around and saying, what do you seek? Hey, what are you looking for? And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. I, I love all of it, but this is the deal. This is the very best. So let's, as we turn to John chapter 1 for our last time in the book of John, I just want to kind of review what we've seen so far. Thus far in our two talks, we've said that you can't sit passively on a curb if you believe that Jesus is the let's take away the sins of the world. Some truths are so important that they absolutely demand action, and inaction calls into question whether you've actually believed the truth or not. So you can't sit on the curb if you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus invites you not just to heaven one day by faith, but Jesus actually invites us to follow him today and forevermore. And we spend time with him based on that invitation, and we love him based on that time that we've spent with him, and so we go and tell the people that we love about the God that we love. So that's what we've looked at so far. We've also talked about disciple-making. We've talked about discipleship and disciple-making. Disciple-making is an intentional and relational process by which you are equipped and mobilized to God's kingdom work. So that, that's what we're doing when we're investing in other people. We're intentional, we're relational, and ultimately we're trying to equip people and mobilize them so that they can follow Jesus in ministry and see how great he is. See how great he is. Some of you, if you're really honest with yourselves, are probably kind of counting the cost of this. The gospel that um, I'm talking about this kingdom gospel, this follow me gospel is a little bit more expansive and a little bit more demanding than the gospel that we've grown up believing. And Jesus says, follow me, and it's into relational ministry. And you guys know that the people around you are a bit of a mess because you know that you're a bit of a mess. And, and so what you're thinking is, this is probably demanding more of my life than I've ever thought about. And is it worth it? Is, it? is it worth it to prioritize kingdom and following Jesus? Is it worth it? Let me pray. We'll talk about that. Lord, help us. Help us to discern whether it is indeed worth it. Help us to be honest with ourselves in the depths of our soul. And even in these small groups later, I pray that we would examine that question, that we would count the cost of following you over and over again, Lord, Jesus called people to count the cost of following him. God, I pray that we would do that tonight. 
And I pray that we would, if, if I'm being really honest, that we would find the cost well worth paying for the joy that awaits. Help us to, to get that by the end of the night, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Is it worth it? John chapter 1, verse 45, all the way to the end of the chapter. Just starting a little bit of review. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Answered. <laughs> that wasn't Jesus' answer. <laughs> Just so you know, it actually says that Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. <laughs> Pretty cool. I mean, like, it's strong language, right? Y'all recognize that. Now, why is this text here? Like, what does this contribute to John chapter 1. Jesus did a fairly small miracle, right? He, he knew Nathaniel's name. He knew that he had no deceit in him. He said, I saw you under the fig tree. I have no idea what's going on under the fig tree or why that was so incredible, but it's a jaw dropper to Nathaniel, right? <laughs> Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I mean, he thinks that this is crazy. That puny as miracles go. I mean, look, Jesus right after that says, you're going to see greater things than these. Now, what's Jesus talking about there? What are the greater things than these? It could be the miracles in chapters 2 through 13. That, that could be it. There are some cool miracles. Chapter 2, Jesus is going to turn water into wine. He's going to know a Samaritan woman is promis promiscuous in chapter Four, I don't even know that that's a miracle. He had, he's he going to heal an official son. He's going to heal an invalid at the pool of Bethesda, which I've actually been to. It's super cool. He, he's going to feed 5,000. That's significant, right? Long time to get through 100 people cooking steaks. <laughs> Jesus is just going to take loaves and fishes and 5,000, bam. That, that's super cool. That might be what he's talking about. He's going to walk on water. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Don't see that every day. Really, really cool. That's a fantastic passage, by the way, that is often misinterpreted. If you want to talk afterwards, I'd love to talk about a different sermon for a different time. It's one of my favorite passages in the book of John. Really, really cool. But he's going to do all of these things, and those are all really great things. But is that what Jesus is talking about when he says, you'll see greater things than these? Puny miracle, those are all miracles. I get that that could be the case. But look at verse 51 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What just happened? 
What just happened? That's a reference, verse 51 is a reference to Genesis 28. If you would, just keep your hand in John chapter 1 and go back all the way to the beginning of the New Testament and to Genesis 28. I found it before most of you, just a little thing in there. It's part of the perks of knowing where you're going in this. Jesus has said, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I've said it's a reference to Genesis 28, verses 10 through 12. You'll see how this works. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, things aren't going well for Jacob. He's using a rock for a pillow. Not a good day. Then this is what happens. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So that's what Jesus is talking about. Back to John chapter 1. Jesus is saying, he's Jacob's ladder. That's what he's saying. The angels of God are going to ascend and descend on me. What do we know about Jacob's ladder? I didn't grow up in church. But the first time I ever heard of Jacob's ladder, it was in a little Sunday school limerick. Have, have any of you heard this? You might not have. Like, I might have made it up. I have no idea, since I didn't grow up in church, how I heard this little limerick Sunday school limerick, but it went like this, and there were hand motions. I, I, I remember that. We are climbing, climbing, climbing. Jacob's ladder, ladder, ladder. Anybody? Okay, a few of you, like the older set, no offense. Um, it's, it's maybe gone the way of felt boards or something like that, and, and those of us who are a little longer in the tooth, and beat up on the basketball court, by the way, um, we remember Jacob's ladder, 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 and, and, and what do we say? We are climbing Jacob's ladder, ladder, ladder. The other reference to Jacob's Ladder that I've ever had, I went to Canicut Camps, Christian Athletic Camp in Branson, Missouri, and when I'm 13, 14, 15, and 16, I'm at that camp, and there's, there's this rope ladder that's on an angle like this, and it has one point of contact at the top and one point of contact at the bottom, and you tried to balance on Jacob's Ladder and climb up it and ring a bell. I was pretty good at it. As a, as a fat child, that was something that was significant for me. I, like... You'll get your identity where you can get your identity. I was not fast. My, my football coach used to go, you couldn't run out of the shade of a tree in a week. Trust me, I needed something to feel good about, and I could climb Jacob's Ladder. And so that's how I remember Jacob's Ladder. I could climb Jacob's Ladder. Here's the point. Here's the point. I want you to hear this. Both of the first two times I ever heard about Jacob's Ladder, it was me who was supposed to be on it. We are climbing, climbing, climbing Jacob's ladder, ladder, ladder. And on Jacob's ladder itself, I'm climbing it. But is that what's going on in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 12? It's angels who are on Jacob's ladder ascending. ascending. The fact that we think that we're the ones ascending, climbing up to heaven somehow. Heresy, legalism. I don't know what it is, but it's wrong. That, that's never going to happen. I don't know why we make 
things like that up, that's not what's going on. Who climbs the ladder? The angels of heaven, they, they climb it up and they climb it down, ascending and descending. Again, John 151, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. You see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that's Jesus. And you guys are all really biblically literate. I'm so impressed with your biblical knowledge. You know that when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, he's not being humble. He, he's saying, I own the world. It, it's Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's vision. He sees one like the Son of Man who is given all dominion and authority forever. When, we always, when I was a kid and I would read this, when I was a brand new Christian in college, I'd read this and I'd go, oh, isn't that cool? Jesus is so humble. He calls himself the Son of Man. God, I didn't realize it was a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And basically he is saying, and normally it's before the Pharisees, I am the son of man, meaning I have all authority forever and ever. I own you. It would be bragging if it wasn't true. But Jesus is the son of man, and the angels aren't ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder anymore. They're ascending and descending on him. Jesus is the ladder. He's the link between this fallen world and God's blessings brought down from heaven by his angelic host. Whatever that means, it's super cool. And Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have already received every spiritual blessing. And it seems to me like here, angels are administering that blessing in real time, and it's through Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, you're going to see greater things than these. Like, heaven is going to, and the heavenly host is going to come near with blessings. This is not the prosperity gospel. Just in case you're going there, remember the first sermon. There were six gospels. That was not the one that I liked. But, but that God is going to interact and he is going to pour out that which he is to pour out through our followership of Jesus and ultimately through Jesus. He's like, Nathaniel, like, put your boots on, babe. We're going places. This is going to be spectacular. Look, guys, realize this or not, but I, I promise you this today. Everything that you have longed for is found in verse 51. Like when you go into some sort of illicit sin looking for something, it is here through Jesus in verse 51. When you start to feel inadequate or insecure or unworthy or something else having to do with failure in sin, it is remedied. In verse 51, angels of heaven ascending and descending, bringing God's to us as followers of Jesus through Jesus. 
That is what you have always longed for. If you are striving to make a name for yourself in work, what you're looking for in something that will be fleeting is found in verse 51. Like anything there is, if, if, if you think you're an athlete and, and you're trying to get your identity in your athleticism or in your intellect or in whatever it is, you don't need to. Because Jesus has said the angels of heaven are going to administer blessings. Heaven will open up and it's because of Jesus. Nathaniel, you don't know what's about to come. But it's all through this, come and you will see. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Have you noticed how bored most men are in church? Like the men in the last three years who have left your church and my church have left because they're bored. That's the truth. And it's, it's not really because your ABF leaders are terrible. And it's, it's not at all because Roger isn't a great expositor. It's because we are sitting on the curb waiting to be fulfilled, waiting to be entertained. And God's design is, you follow me, Nathaniel, and you will see heaven open up. Now, what happens with the disciples? They are terrified, bewildered, and amazed. They're never bored. That, that is never what the Gospels describe the Gospels as. They're, they're never bored. Have you noticed that? So why then are men in the church today so horribly bored if the Gospels say that disciples of Jesus are never bored. In fact, it's just the opposite. If you're going to leave following Jesus, it's because it's too wild. Follow me. And you will see heaven opened up. You will see my angels administer great kingdom things through you serve me. It's what you've always longed for. You just never knew that it couldn't happen by sitting in something called a pew on a Sunday morning. Why would we think something called a pew would be exciting? It's a pew. Right? So the point is, is it worth it? Is is messy life-on-life ministry with people who are fallen and broken and flaky that you are and all the other things that they are, is it worth it? And the answer is, it kind of depends if you're still looking for heaven to be opened up and angels to administer blessings through Jesus. If, if, If the answer to that is yes, then the answer to discipleship is yes. And I think you're lying through your teeth if you say it's no. I think you're lying through your teeth. Okay, that's the teaching. You believe Jesus is the Lamb of God, so you follow. 
You spend time with him so you love Jesus. You love Jesus so you introduce him to the people that you love. You and your friends follow Jesus and you see heaven opened up and angels ascend and descend on Jesus who is the ladder who links heaven and earth. That's John chapter 1. And then, he, and then I ask, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And, and basically that's in his invitation to us. What does your world look like, Rabbi? Ask Jesus into my heart. Where are you going? Because I will go where you go. That's the question a disciple asks. That's John chapter 1. I'm going to suppose that you guys have 100% bought in, that your only hope for seeing heaven open, your only hope for joy and the abundant life that Jesus wants for us is found in being a disciple and in making a disciple. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get the clicker, which I think is back there, I hope it's back there. And we're going to go through two tools. Remember, there's teaching and there's training. I've, I've done some teaching. Maybe good, maybe bad. It's late. I get it. Now we're going to do some training. And the training is for you've bought in and you need to know how to make disciples. And so these are a couple of simple tools that that really are, are going to help bridge the gap. Let's see if I can get this right. They're going to bridge the gap from the unconsciously qualified. Some people can do this just intuitively. qualified, And the consciously unqualified. So that's what these tools are for. Some people can do this just intuitively. That's great. Maybe one-tenth of you can do that intuitively. You've been doing it all your life, and you're like, why doesn't everybody else do this? The answer is because you have an engineer's mind and you, you feel like you have to understand everything before you'll set off in one direction and, and go and make disciples terrifies you because you're like, I need an instruction manual. I can't give you an instruction manual. I can give you some tools. And so dang. I'm going to give you a triangle. It doesn't get much more simple than a triangle. And, and here's what we're going to give you on this triangle, okay? I'm going to see if mine will give me a triangle too. Basically, I'm going to stop using this. I can do this on my own. Okay, so you've got up, in, and out on the triangle. In your discipleship relationships, in your small groups, in your church... There should ultimately be balance between up, in, and out. Up represents prayer, Bible study, things focused in a vertical direction. I'm trying to understand who God is, and I am praying to God. That's directionally up. In is all things pertaining to community. I, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be accountable. I know that that scares some of you. It's because we're insecure. That's why it scares you. 
But if we can understand that we are securing Christ, we can then start to share our hearts with other men, be accountable, be vulnerable, encourage them, and also be challenged to grow in areas that we need to grow. So pertaining to community, accountability, vulnerability, etc. And then you have out. Out is all things pertaining to mission. All things pertaining to mission. There should be a balance of up, in, and out in almost all of your relationships. Certainly all of your disciple-making relationships. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three different triangles. And you'll see that these three triangles have different shapes. Think of up at the top, in on the right, out on the left. I want you to think of activities that you do in church that would be represented by these three different shapes. So the one on the far left, what would be an activity that has a limited up, no in, and all out. Let me see what I said here, actually. All things pertaining to mission. I'm going to tell you in a second. Let's see. Yeah, something like a VBS. You're going to get a little teaching, a community. You're going to be run ragged because there's a bunch of little Apache Indians running around the church. But it's a great outreach. Vacation Bible study. Who, who said that, by the way? boy. Thanks. Okay, what about this, this middle triangle? This is just pertaining to the church. It's not pertaining to your individual disciple-making activities, but I'm just making sure that you get this. What would be something that has a lot of up, a little bit of an in, and no out? Friday night praise and worship night, right? Tons of, of prayer, tons. Of, there's some community. You're doing it with believers. It's probably not your outreach night. You're not inviting non-Christians to a praise and worship night. What about this, this other one? I love this other one, by the way. Like we Don't sleep on the fact that it's a low up. That doesn't mean that it's bad. There should be a balance to your activities. What would be something that doesn't have a real high up, but has great in and great out? Yeah, paintball with the guys. You're going you're gonna to ask your non-Christian friends. You're going to ask all the Christian guys. You're going to go and shoot each other to the glory of God. You're going to eat meat to the glory of God. It's got a little up because you're eating meat to the glory of God, but mostly it's all about outreach and inreach. So you guys get that? Same thing with your, your small groups. Like, in order for a small group to ultimately thrive, you're, you're going to need definitely some up. Most small groups do that pretty well. You're going to need in, which is going to require vulnerability and accountability, and, and that's a progressively developing thing, but we should develop it. No idea what just happened. I'm going to hold real still. I have no idea what I was just talking about. We're going to move on. Let's talk about the triangle in a... Small groups, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. So s- small groups have great up. They have generally better in. And then where they struggle is figuring out a tangible expression of out, a, a missional component. And look, that can be practicum, not just application. So it, that doesn't mean everyone has to go to the and serve soup together. That eventually kind of erodes into tokenism, I think. But, but what about if you're saying, how, how in your in section of the time together, how does this text apply to me? How, how do I feel convicted by the Spirit? And what is my application that everyone's going to pray for me for? And then you go out, and then two weeks later, when you're meeting back together, you go, hey, John, you said you wanted, based on the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to share the gospel with the guy in the next cube at work. How did that go? So it's not just application where we talk about what we should do to come, where we're actually putting feet to our conviction. Up, in, and out. That's small groups. How about your individual discipleship groups or your individual disciple, the guy that you're meeting with? What, what would be an example? I want to hear from y'all. What's an example of up? This is a layup. Prayer time together. Reading God's word together, right? What would be an example of, of in? Being vulnerable. Like sharing your struggles. As the leader, you should be willing to share your struggles. How are you going to teach them to be vulnerable and accountable if you yourself are not willing and accountable? Lead with a limp. Don't, don't try to come off as the perfect Christian. That's in. What's your example of out? Yeah, if you've got the... If, if you have kind of an apostolic gift and and you're going out that's what it means to be apostolic it's just to go out from the church mission field whatever it is you invite them along if you have the gift of mercy and, and you go and you help the down and out in san antonio you say hey come with me do like how many of you can open god's word and read it with a guy or pray raise your hands if you can Okay, most of you. I'm not exactly sure why you couldn't, like there weren't all hands raised. I'm not going to shame you though. We're going to move on. How many of you can, can say, I struggle in this area? What do you struggle in? How, can, can you do that? Okay, these, this is two out of the three sides of a disciple-making relationship. How many of you can say, come alongside with me? Parakaleo is this great word. It's normally translated encourage. Para means alongside. Kaleo means to call. Parakaleo is a great disciple maker's word. It's to call from alongside. How cool is that? The kingdom's out this way. Let's get after it together. Come on. And you, whatever your gift is, you go and use it and you bring someone with you. Can you do that? Then you can be a disciple maker. That's the point. You've got teaching, you've got training, you've got practicum. We just talked about that. Let's go to the next one. This is just a series of matrix, matrixes. I don't know what the plural of matrix is. Okay, may try. Now, language is dynamic. We're going to just start making stuff up, okay? These are going to be some may try, like cacti. Okay, so you've got hearing and doing. Let me ask you this. How many, how many of you know, like, 
in your life a handful of pastors? Okay, a lot of you. So if a pastor was asking about most of the churches, most of the Bible churches in America, would they say that the people of their church are higher in hearing or higher in doing? So you've got hearing high and hearing low down below, and then you've got doing low and then doing high over here. What pastors say? Like, where is the average congregant in most pastors? What quadrant? Quadrant one, two, three, or four? One. How high? I mean, what are we talking about here? Are we talking here? No, they, they think their teaching's better than that, don't they? They're going to say up here. Well, do you, now, let's be honest. Are we over here? Or are we over here? Left? Here? A little more? Pastors whine about their congregants being great hearers but bad doers. Let's look at this a little bit. This something to evaluate your disciple making. I, I get that we're applying it to a whole congregation, but, but it applies to many different scenarios. Upper left quadrant, quadrant number one. If, if you are high in hearing and low on doing, you're going to have a knowledgeable but passive congregation. Welcome to the Bible church. Not kidding. I'm not saying it's necessarily each of you. I'm just saying that's what most Bible church pastors would self-select on this graph. Okay, what about, what? tell me what the person who is in quadrant number two, the lower left quadrant, what, what does that person look like? Low on hearing and low on doing. Church with bad theology. Man, that thing's driving me bananas. What else? There's a lot of right answers here. No requirement. Stagnant at best, right? Okay, what about quadrant three? This is high, but low in hearing. Serving? Okay, serving in the church, but, but, but if they're not hearing the right things and they're serving a lot, likely legalist. Yeah, maybe so. They're, they're always out and they're never really learning. So they're not re- they're, what they're doing is not really in response to the gospel or in response to Jesus. They're just doing and feeling good about themselves because of their efforts, likely legalists. What's quadrant four? Someone who is getting equal doses of hearing what he hears and actually putting it into practice. A disciple, right? Surely... By talk three, you saw that word coming. Okay, so before we go on to the next matrix, let's remember that most pastors would say that their congregants are high in hearing and low on doing, right? Let's go to the next matrix. Teaching and training. Teaching is teaching doctrine. It's teaching the Bible. Training as opposed to teaching. And, and they blend in, so d- don't, don't get too like worked up on what the distinct overlap, but, but teaching is teaching about God's word. Teaching is instruction in doctrine, things like that. Training is trying to put tools in people's tool belts so that they can go out and do ministry, whatever that looks like. You get the difference between teaching and training? 
Now it's your turn to criticize the pastors. Are pastors doing more teaching or more training? Tons more teaching. We get up on Sundays and we talk about the Bible all the time. But we don't put tools in people's tool belts. So the, understand this. Whoa, close. Um, if you are high in teaching and low in training, wouldn't that, if I did that if, at Grace Bible Church, if I did that all the time, wouldn't that produce someone who is a great hearer but not a great doer? My point is this. I think pastors are lame in saying that their congregants are great hearers but bad doers because we have conditioned congregants to be great hearers but bad doers because we teach and they can hear that, but we train and so they don't know how to do it. There's an overlap here. What would quadrant one be? Typical Bible church. We've already talked about that. Quadrant two, a, a church that was terrible at teaching and a church that is terrible at training. Typical liberal church. No offense. Hey. Um, what would high in training and low in teaching be? I promise you, you're going to end up with a culture of legalists. That's just what's going to happen. If, you, if your activities, if your disciple making, if your service is not rooted, you will be a legalist. That, that's why we have to do a good job teaching, by the way. All of this isn't to say that we should stop teaching and start training. There has to be an equal balance because when there is an equal balance, you have a disciple-making church. In your disciple-making relationships now, when you start investing in somebody, what are you going to need to do based on this? Teach and train. You've got to get some tools. You've got to get some things that are going to help the guys that you're investing in so that they can start investing in other people, so that they can start doing ministry and part other people as they do ministry together. It's going to be important. One more matrix. Character and competency. Kind of a little bit different one, but you're going to see some parallels. Um, high character. What, what would be somebody who's high character? Somebody who cares about other people, what else? What, what, what is a mark of high character? Not what are things that make high character, but, but what is a mark of a person with high character? Like what? Honesty. Honesty, yeah, sure. Uh, sacrifice over here. What else? What? Integrity. integrity, right? I mean, maybe the best word, like high character is a person who has integrity. Live by conviction. They, they are who they say they are, Right? What about competency? What's the difference between character and competency? What is, what is competency? Right. You've you got to be able to get something done. It's one thing to be a nice guy and admirable, but, but being productive is kind of cool too. Like sometimes as Christians, we're like, oh, he is just so nice. We should hire him on the church staff. And like, not if he can't do anything. Like that's not how the world works. There's character and there's competency. What would, be high, what would be an example of someone who is high character and low competency? Murmur, murmur, murmur. Pure and unproductive, right? Pure-hearted, bless this little heart. What a, what a sweet guy. But if you're 
daughter is thinking about marrying that guy, I'm not sure you want that. I, he won't cheat on your daughter, but he won't provide for her either. It's a problem. What about quadrant two? Passive and impure. That's really who you don't want your daughter to date. <laughs> like, you're defiled and on the curve. That is, that's just bad. What about someone with high competency and low care, character? You know what we call that in the church? Dangerous. That's the person who tries to split your church. They're impressive. They're charismatic in the personality sense of the word. But they will bite you in the butt. They will lie. They will do whatever they can to promote themselves. You do not want quadrant three. So competency without is just as bad as character without competency, maybe worse. What you're trying to produce, what you're trying to be, is a man of character and competency. We did this great drill in this cohort a couple of months ago where we had to look through two of the Gospels and write down all the character qualities that, are, that Jesus exhibits and all the competencies that Jesus exhibits. And then we went through the whole book of Acts and we wrote down all the character qualities of the uh, apostles and then all competencies of the apostles. There are some competencies and character qualities that we're not going to have that Jesus had. So we cross-reference those with the apostles there's a whole bunch of things that are the same. And then what we were trying to do at that point is we were trying to whittle down to six core character qualities and six core competencies so that we could design our curriculum for our whole church basically to arrive at those fundamental things. It's basically having a target that you're shooting for. I just want you to realize that it's not enough to disciple someone just to character. If you want them to be a real, you also have to do competency. Teaching and training. Character and competency. Do you, do you see that there needs to be a balance? So often, we're not really trying to produce anything. Know what you're trying to produce. Know what the person you're trying to disciple needs. And work to those ends. Be intentional not just relational, so that you can equip and ultimately mobilize a disciple, not some funky, dangerous guy or somebody who's pure and unproductive and pure. I mean, you're looking for quadrant four there. Any questions about any of this? This is not complicated. You can do all of this, I promise. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of you. Y'all are qualified. It is right there for you. And, and we'll talk about a, another tool tomorrow, but there's a bunch of other tools, and if, if you need them, I'll give them to you. And I know that he will. So your pastors are not here to minister to you. They are equip you for the work of ministry so that you can grow to maturity and you can bring other people along with you. 
That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. That's his job. If I'm not around, you go drive him bananas, asking him for tools and training and help because you're running hard to make disciples. He'll love that. He'll love it. It shouldn't mean more coming from the senior pastor. Like, take your tools wherever you can get it. And that does not mean that there shouldn't be teaching and training as well, because that's my responsibility too. But but he's in charge of the men's ministry here, and and you guys as a collection are are here as a product of the men's ministry. And, And I'm telling you, he can do this stuff. Like, Daniel Ernest, who is our small groups pastor, knows as much or more about disciple-making at this point than I do. And, and I started the church as a disciple-making church. So this is not the Roger Poopar deal. This is you leaning on all the pastoral staff who should be teaching and training, equipped and mobilized, so that you can pour into people that they might be equipped and mobilized. And bef- in the next generation, by the way, The disciples that you're discipling, when they get stuck, they're not going to come to him. They're going to come to you. They're not going to come to Roger. Water flows downhill. downhill. It it should start with Roger. But whether it does or doesn't, I I think it, it probably will, but whether it does or doesn't, I just want you to realize that the other pastors who are working at Wayside Chapel, that's their job. They are not too busy to train you. That is their job. Biblically speaking, that's what they do. They don't do men. They equip you. God has given some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers, to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. The word ministry means in the dust laboring so that the body of Christ might grow to maturity. Like his job isn't to constantly teach and be the minister. His job is to equip that you might minister and it's by your ministry that the church grows to maturity. Because what happens is you're chasing after Jesus and you start to see angels ascending and descending on the finished work of Jesus as you follow him. And you love Jesus, ever have, and you're no longer bored because this seems like a history lesson. It is an active, living, breathing book where God has revealed himself and you are believing in it and you are seeing it. And it's fantastic. It is so worth it. Let me pray, and, um, and then we'll, we'll break into our small groups. Lord, help us. Help us to be men who embrace this challenge. I pray, God, that we would not be men who take the cultural Christian passive way to where we sit in a pew And we wonder constantly if there must be more to life. Father, I I pray that we would know abundance. I pray that we would know Jesus as a ladder upon which angels ascend and descend, ministering the will of God as we follow him. And God, I I pray whatever tools that these men need in in their tool belt as they go out to make disciples that you would give them those tools and that they would take steps forward in faith.
not in their own abilities. But Father, I, I pray that you change the world through these men, through obedience, through followership. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.